Good morning. Most of you know me, I think. Let's pray before we begin. Father, apart from the work of your Spirit, we know nothing even as we read your Word. Apart from the work of your Spirit, none of us can stand and say anything significant. Or even begin to understand what you've told us. So we open our hearts to you, I open my heart to you, and ask that you would be pleased to take your word and to apply it to us today as you see fit. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. This is our text this morning, we're following the lectionary readings, and the text of the lectionary readings to this, this Sunday of Lent is um, John chapter 3, Verses 1 to 17. You may have heard of those verses before. You might can quote much of that. So it is likely that everyone has, is familiar with this passage. Then again, when something is really familiar, it's easily ignored. You know the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. Or at least indifference. But familiar or not, this morning, this text demands our attention. So come with me as we think our way through this, uh, these truths of John 3. We're going to read John 3, verses 1 to 17. It's page 1055, 1055 in the Pew Bibles. And uh, follow along as I read a fairly, fairly lengthy account. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. And hear witness to what we have seen, bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, 
But whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is obviously a lengthy text, which has a lot to say to us. In fact, it's um, so lengthy that uh, I'm going to try to do something I don't know that I've ever done before, and that is to have four, count them, four (laughs) points. The first of which is this. Your successes will not save your soul. Your successes will not save your soul. Success is normally a good thing. It's the opposite of failure. (laughs) But your greatest successes, your most impressive accomplishments, will not save your soul, will not bring you eternal life. Let me introduce you to a man named Nicodemus. Over the years, he has gotten a bum rap from Christians. He's been uh, painted as a coward who snuck around at night to trick Jesus. But Nicodemus was a man just like you and I, except that he was probably more successful than any of us. (laughs) That's what what makes uh, our passage so powerful. While Nicodemus enjoyed great success, Jesus said it could not save him. Consider some of his successes. Nicodemus was a powerful prestige man. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was a group of 70 men who who governed every aspect of Israel's life. The executive, the legislative, the judicial, and all the religious aspects of life. And Nicodemus seems to have been the spokesman for that group. For as he speaks to Jesus, he uses the plural here. Speaking for himself and others like me. Oh, Nicodemus had power and prestige. But it couldn't save him. Nicodemus was also an educated man. Just the fact that he was a Pharisee guarantees that he was a scholar. But in verse 10, Jesus Jesus calls Nicodemus the teacher of Israel. Evidently, he was the most prominent teacher of his day. But Nicodemus, the great scholar, the, 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 the prominent teacher, fell short of understanding the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was also a man of integrity, though. As a Pharisee, he had taken a public vow that he would spend his entire life observing every detail of the biblical law. He believed the scripture was God's word, and he had committed himself to obey every word of it. Nicodemus was a man of high ethical Standards, a man of great integrity, but such success could not save him. Finally, perhaps most surprisingly, Nicodemus had some belief in Jesus. 
We see this in verse 2. Nicodemus admitted that Jesus was a teacher sent from God. But even beyond that, he believed that Jesus did miracles by God's power. Nicodemus was a man we all wish we could be. Wealthy, powerful, educated, morally upright, one who believed in Jesus. But Jesus said he was not fit for the kingdom of God. And your greatest successes will not fit you either for the kingdom of God. Which brings us to a second point. Jesus says, you need a new life. So your success isn't going to bring you into the kingdom. Jesus says, you need a new life. In our text, we have a powerful moment recorded. This giant of a man, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus to discuss some fine points of theology. But Jesus looked this wonderful, successful, morally upright man, looked him right in the face and says, Nicodemus, you need a new life. He actually says it three times, verse 3, verse 5, verse 7. No one can come into the kingdom of God unless he is born again. The New Testament scholar, Leon Morris, sums it up. In one sentence, Jesus sweeps away all that Nicodemus stands for and demands that he be remade by the power of God. Well, Jesus was not putting Nicodemus down or turning him away, nor is he turning you away when you hear the same thing from him. Jesus was not putting Nicodemus down. Or, you know, the, the, the glorious truth of this passage is that Jesus came to give us a whole new life, to effect radical rebirth. So consider what Jesus has to say about this new birth. First, he says it's humanly impossible. Okay, Jesus didn't have to tell Nicodemus, Nicodemus that. He could figure that out. He said, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born again. But way back in John chapter 1, Jesus had said clearly that becoming a child of God requires a rebirth. Not a physical birth from human passions, but a spiritual birth that comes from God. The point is, you can't reborn yourself. <laughs> you couldn't born yourself in the beginning, and you can't born yourself now. In verse 5, Jesus explains that this rebirth is a demonstration of God's Holy Spirit at work. Truly, truly, I say it to you, we read, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The point is that rebirth is this mysterious working of the Spirit of God to give us spiritual life where there was none, to give us a new heart, a new spirit, and to make us a new creature in Christ Jesus makes this point in verse 8 when he speaks of the wind. Speaks of the wind. The wind is, um, 
wind is the same word as uh, spirit in Greek. And so Jesus makes a play on words here. But he says, you can see the effects of the wind, but you don't understand it. And so you can see the effects of the spirit birth, though you don't understand that either. But this is what God promised centuries before to the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel we read, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. So, why is that that we need a new life? Why? Well, in verse 14, Jesus brings up the issue of sin. In Numbers 21, we read about God, about God's people turning against the Lord, accusing him of bringing them into the wilderness to die, when in fact it was their own rebellion that was their problem. And so God sent snakes to bite them and kill them. And they would all perished, except that God showed mercy and saved some. And you see, we're no different. Like those people in the wilderness, we need the new life that only God can give. Our sin has separated us from him, just like the sin of the people in the desert separated them from the Lord. But, realizing we're sinners and we've created this mess, but, there's a third point. God loves sinners. God loves sinners. That's what we read in John 3.16, the most well-known verse in the whole Bible. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now when we read God loves the world, we immediately tend to put our spin on it. We tend to think of the vastness of the world. And to think of the masses of, humani of humanity and how God can love so many. But if our, emphasis focuses, if our emphasis focuses on how God loves every single person on earth, before long we are saying, oh the value of each of us. Oh the beauty that God must see in us. Oh, how can anyone be condemned when God loves us so? The danger is we end up not glorying the love of God, but in loving ourselves and our self-importance and our self-worth and our rights. But the message of this text is much different. Consider that it is God who loves. It is God who dwells in unapproachable light who loves. 
It is God who is so pure that he cannot look upon wickedness. That's who loves us. It is God who dwells in the majesty and glory, the absolute righteousness and goodness and flaming purity and stainless perfection. It's God before whom the angels cry day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. It is God who needs nothing and no one who is so perfectly complete in himself that he has that he is affected by no actions by no, none of his creatures this is god who sits in majestic perfection on his eternal heavenly throne and does whatsoever he pleases that god loves sinners loves the world. Make no mistake, that's what this says, the world. Could John use that word? He uses it so often in his writing. Could he actually have meant to say world here? As a, as a scholar, B.B. Warfield wrote, world is just the synonym of all that is evil and noisome and disgusting. That's world. There's nothing in that that can attract God's love. Nothing that can even justify the love of any good person. The world is what Christians labor to overcome. The world is what Christians are forbidden to love. Why? Because all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father. It's the world. Indeed, God tells us that the whole world lies under the control of the evil one. The world, John tells us elsewhere, is partners with the flesh and with the devil as the enemies of God. So, Professor... B.B. Warfield explains. See then where this takes us. When we are told that God loves the world, it is as if we are saying that God loves the devil and the flesh. But there is the ground of all of our comfort and our hope because you and I are of the world and we are of the flesh and we are of the devil. Oh, do you see the point that our text is making? God loves sinners. It's unbelievable, but it's true. God loves sinners. This is where... We see the greatness and the majesty, the infinitude of the love of God. That God loves sinners. It's not the vastness of the world that defines the mag magnitude of God's love. It is the fact that God loves even those who betrayed and cursed and assaulted him to death. God loves sinners. That love was first 
displayed in Jesus' birth. The eternal Son of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And then here in verse 17, we find the same kind of thing. God sent his Son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save us. And now, especially at the cross, we see Jesus' love for sinners. The Apostle Paul wrote about this in Romans 5, and I quote, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There on the cross, Jesus, the innocent, unique, holy Son of God, bore the wrath of his heavenly Father, his heavenly Father against sin and the world. There he completely endured its fury. There he satisfied God's justice. There he paid the death sentence that our sins deserve. Why? Why would he? Why would his father let him? What cause is great enough, powerful enough, to to produce such an act? It's the incomprehensible love of God. As we read in verse 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only, one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Oh, dear folks, especially you who thought you were beyond hope, There may be some of those here who know, you who know the wretchedness of your heart, the things that no one else knows about you. You who secretly thought that your sin was too vile, too heinous, too repeated to ever find peace with God, to ever be clean again. Listen to the good news. God loves sinners. Have you ever heard such a thing? God loves sinners. No, it must be too good to be true. God loves sinners. Perhaps others that you know have long ago given up on you. So they have. That doesn't change the fact that God loves sinners. As a songwriter put it, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the brightest star and it reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair Bowed down with care, God gave his son to win. 
his erring child, he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. God loves sinners. So how should we respond? That's our fourth point. Trust Jesus. Trust Jesus and live. Trust Jesus and live. God's love, God giving his son, demands a response. We must do something. So what will it be? Well, there are two possible responses outlined here. The first is a response that comes naturally to us when we're guilty. You probably had it when you were a child and you misbehaved and you did something you weren't supposed to do and your mother called you and suddenly you didn't want to go. You wanted to hide. You knew you would be in trouble if you were found out just the sound of her voice and suddenly you were hungry to be away from her. When we're guilty, which we all are, we want to run and hide. That's the one response. And that's exactly what's described in verses 19 and 20. The light has come into the world And people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. And the result of this natural response is that we stand condemned. Dr. Leon Morris, one of the experts on the the Gospel of John, explains, Faced with the light that has come into the world, men usually prefer darkness. They shut themselves up in the darkness, eat themselves off, keep themselves, cut themselves off from the light. Why do they do this? Because their works were evil, immersed in wrongdoing, they have no wish to be disturbed. And Romans 1, in Romans 1, God speaks of us suppressing, holding down the truth because of our wicked ways. And for that, the wrath of God comes. That may describe some of you right now. Oh, you might not say that you, have, that you love the darkness, You just feel uncomfortable when the light gets too bright. If God gets a little close, if your own secret life looks like it might be exposed, you just want to back away from that source of light. And whether the source is the church or a friend or spouse, you see that natural response. We like the security of the darkness. It feels safe when no one can see what we're about. But that's the way of condemnation. That's the way of perishing. That is not the way of life. So there's this different response. This is what the text calls us to do. 
trust Jesus and live. Trust Jesus and live. This is my way of summarizing what, how, what God, how God calls us to respond. Let's look at the different ways unpacked uh, in our text. Verse 16, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Verse 18 again, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But to believe is not just to mentally agree with Christ. It means to actively entrust yourself to him. Look at verse 21. Whoever lives by the truth, literally it said, whoever does the truth comes to the light. God calls us to believe in Christ enough that we act on it. And so, what is it that we are to do? Must we earn our salvation? We can't do that. To do the truth is to come to the light. It means we put away our fear of exposure. We have no reason to hide anymore. So we come to Christ. We entrust ourselves to Christ. We believe that he did and will love us and will not condemn us, but save us. Put all that together and what do you have? Trust Jesus and live. Trust Jesus and live. Several years ago, many, many years ago, but a few years after World War II was over, one of, one of the remote islands in the South Pacific, some Japanese soldiers were discovered. They had no idea the war was over, though it was years ago. They were still guarding their post, ready to kill the Americans if they came. But now they'd been found out by their enemy. So what should they do? Well, at first they pulled back deeper into the jungle and hiding, but the enemy kept coming to find them. Not only that, but now the enemy is telling them the war is over. There's no reason to continue to retreat. Come out. Japan and America are friends. <laughs> Lay down your arms and come. If you were there, what would you do if you're one of those soldiers? You might say, I don't want to be your friend. You're my enemy. Then what would you do? You'd go deeper and deeper into the jungle, or you'd come out with guns blazing and find yourself getting killed. Oh, but what if you began to believe that what you heard was true? On the one hand, it would be easy. The war's over. Lay down your arms and be welcomed by your new friends. But on the other hand, it would be so hard. To believe would demand that you expose yourself, that you make yourself vulnerable, that you come to the one that you hated. This is where we stand, folks. The war is with God is over. It ended at the cross. It's over. There Jesus paid the debt 
There Jesus endured death. There Jesus defeated Satan. There Jesus conquered hell. But some of us are still holed up in a cave. Still a fugitive. Still at war with God. This morning I call you to abandon any hope of being good enough or doing anything on your own. Hear the good news that God has given us. All your best success cannot save you. But Jesus says, I'll give you a new life. Born anew. Jesus also says, I know all about your failures. But I'm the one that loves sinners. Therefore, Jesus says, trust me. Come and live. I died that you might live. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for grace that is beyond even anything we can describe with words. Thank you for loving sinners like us. Thank you for your spirit and your word that tells us about your salvation. Thank you for doing everything necessary to bring us back to yourself and give us the faith to trust you and come home to you. Amen.